Good morning, Sharon Street. Uh, so our text this week made me think that it might not, well, it might be good for us that we're being forced to be away from our church building for a while. Um, I miss worshiping with all of you and preaching is not the same, staring at my phone like this um, instead of all of your lovely faces. Uh, but I think there's something good here too. Um, I think it can help us to uh, remember exactly what church and worship are. Uh, the church is the gathering of the people. Um, it's not the building. So it's not quite right to say the church is closed. It's better to say the church building is closed because the church is the people. Right now, the church is not closed, nor can it be. We're just more scattered than usual. And the worship that we do on Sunday mornings is not all of our worship, um, even if it's the only time that we sing. Sunday morning worship is important, but it, it prepares and shapes us for the worship that we do the rest of the week. According to Romans 12, our true and proper worship is more about what we do with our bodies every day. It's about the choices that we make. We are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, and that's our real worship. It's not just about the times that we're gathered together. That the Greek word behind true and proper um, is the same word that we get, the same word from which we get our word logical. Whew, that was hard to say. It's the word from which we get our word logical. As if Paul is saying the logical response to God's mercies is to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. The logical response to God's mercies is to let your lives be shaped by those mercies and to let everything that you do be informed by them. That's worship. You know, maybe being away from the building for a while can help us clear up some of that confusion. You still have the chance to worship every day. For the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul has laid out exactly what those mercies are. That we have been loved, saved, forgiven, welcomed, and gathered together by a God whose love has never given up on us and never will. By a God who has gone to extraordinary lengths even unbelievable links to bring us back from death to life and to repair what is broken in us, to invite us to be part of repairing the world. And now with the therefore at the beginning of verse one, Paul pivots to the practical implications of those mercies. What does the incredible grace of our God mean for our daily lives? And for the next couple of chapters, Paul describes some of those implications, beginning with individual transformation to the effects on the community of believers, to our interaction with the outside world and the state. If we logically respond to the mercies of God, we will live lives that exemplify humility, unity, love, and peace. That is our true and proper worship. It all begins with the mercy of God, and that mercy needs to sink deep into our hearts and minds so that we are transformed by it. Um, this week in my reading, I came across a great sermon by Dr. King on this text called Transformed Nonconformists. Uh, it's really beautiful and you should all read it. Um, he says that the world is desperately in need of nonconformists. He was writing in 1954. I think he's still right. He says the world is def desperately in need of nonconformists, people who are courageous enough to resist the status quo, even if it's not popular. 
but that nonconformity for the sake of nonconformity is is useless and moral conform moral nonconformity that is not transformed by the gospel often just turns into self-righteousness he says this by opening our lives to god in christ we become new creatures this experience which jesus spoke of as new birth is essential if we are to be transformed nonconformists and freed from the cold hard-heartedness and self-righteousness so often characteristic of nonconformity he says that fighting injustice often leaves people annoyingly rigid and unreasonably impatient and then only through an inner spiritual transformation do we gain strength to fight vigorously the evils of the world in a humble and loving spirit most people at sherman are uh, dedicated to fighting the evils of the world to fighting injustice and like dr king says we need the transformation to do it well you know if we protest the ways that people are dehumanized and we do it by dehumanizing people what have we accomplished it's the same pattern of so many other things in our world and we're just following it um, the activist fania davis uh, she talks about how the prison system so she says this about the prison system the prison system harms people who have harmed people to make the point that harming people is wrong you can see how it's self-defeating, right? Because the patterns of this world are just that, patterns. They will repeat themselves unless something fundamental changes. Only through an inner spiritual transformation do we gain the strength to fight vigorously the evils of the world in a humble and loving spirit. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I think a lot of the things that make it sort of difficult to be a Christian these days, um, a lot of the things that other Christians are doing, and a lot of the evils that Christians have perpetrated in the past come from this lack of transformation. Dr. King makes that point too. He says that the early Christians were truly transformed nonconformists. He says they refused to shape their witness according to the mundane patterns of the world. And through their witness, the early, Christian, the early Christians ended terrible practices like infanticide and the, the bloody gladiator battles. All of that ended because of them. And lots of scholars would make the case that early Christians were a major factor in the fall of the Roman Empire. But starting with Constantine's conversion in, in the fourth century, Christianity started to gain power and wealth and prestige. And Christianity is always strangled when it is allied with those things because it conforms to the patterns of this world. And so for the last 1600 years, the history of the church in the West has been decidedly mixed. Dr. King said, ever since, ever since Constantine, he's saying, ever since the church has been a weak and ineffectual trumpet making uncertain sounds. A bright spot in church history is that whenever the church has gotten rich and corrupt, there has always been some transformed nonconformists who refuse to play along. People shaking off the trappings of the world to do something differently, something more creative, springing from renewed minds rather than the same tired, violent patterns of the world. And through church history, that often took the form of monastic movements and people becoming monks giving up everything, often taking vows of poverty, 
to hold a prophetic stance against the corruption of the church. Now, often those groups would eventually gain wealth and prestige for themselves, and then they would become corrupt, and another monastic movement would rise up and take their place as the resistance. Uh, maybe you've heard of uh, Shane Claiborne and the New Monasticism. They see themselves in that tradition. Lots of, the, lots of people these days um, bemoan the loss of Christendom in the West, right? They are scared because Christianity is losing power in the United States and other Western countries. Um, but I think it's a blessed opportunity for our faith to cease to be allied with power. You know, 60 years ago, if you missed church on Sundays, your boss would ask you why. You know, it was lucrative to go to church, which meant that lots of people went to church even if transformation had no part in their lives. And there's still a lot of that. But more and more, it's becoming true that going to church is kind of weird, and it doesn't offer you any kind of advantage. Maybe Grand Rapids has a ways to go in that, but I, I welcome the change. Our witness will be clarified as we get farther from power. And the people who keep coming to church will much more likely be the people who are pressing into the transformation, who are letting the mercies of God seep deep into their muscles, allowing them to give inflection to their voices. They will be the people who are filled with a creativity that moves beyond the same old patterns of death or of wealth and power. A people who are truly able to discern God's good and pleasing and perfect will. When we move into, we've just been talking about the first two verses, when we move into verse three of the text, Paul's discussion on gifts, it seems kind of like we're starting a new topic, but we're not. It's still the same. You know, all those little um, headers in the Bible, they're not actually part of the biblical text. They're there to help us understand and to navigate, but you know, Paul didn't write them in, in his letters. Um, you can tell that Paul is still on the same topic because, because of that for at the beginning of the sentence. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. A part of our transformation is that we have to learn to think accurately about ourselves and others. It's not think of yourself as terrible and others as great. It's just don't be too full of yourself. Be accurate. You have a gift to offer. Own it. Offer it. And also recognize that everyone else has something to offer too. That alone, if we could get it down, can you imagine how it would transform the world? Um, it's like eight verses of scripture. I think it would change everything. Imagine if every person rec could recognize that they can't and shouldn't try to do and be everything. Like already so much anxiety and burnout and overwork has just disappeared. <laughs> Imagine if they could recognize that they can't and shouldn't try to do and be everything, that they're just as important as every other person, that every person has something to offer and that we all belong to one another. It would change everything. As far as I can tell, it would put an end to classism and racism and nationalism, maybe poverty, even most marital fights. Um, I'm kind of joking, but I'm kind of serious. I actually think that that's true. Like I've been in, uh, I've been in counseling forever. And one moment that was really helpful for me uh, 
was when my counselor reminded me that Tony and I have different gifts and that we should probably consider that. Um, you know, I had this dream of cooking with my husband and I also have really intense food ethics that I don't usually live up to, but I try. Um, and I care a lot about nutrition. Turns out that Tony thinks that these things are good, but they're just not really his thing. And that used to cause no end of frustration in our marriage. You know, I get mad at him about food from every angle you can imagine. Um, I'd insist that I wasn't going to do all the cooking because I was resisting like traditional gender roles. And then when he'd cook, I'd get upset about what he made or whether there were enough vegetables or I'd see him cooking and think he was doing something wrong. And so I'd take over. Um, doesn't that sound like a really awesome thing for our relationship? Uh, it was not great. It was not great. Um, so I was griping to my counselor about this one day. I don't know what I was saying, but some facet of the same fight. And my counselor said, maybe this is just your gift for your family and you should just own that. And that blew my mind. Like it just changed how I thought about all of it. And she was totally right. So I do food in our house. Tony cooks sometimes because we both work and have little kids and everything. But for the most part, I do it and I think it's awesome. I love cooking and I love being in control of what food is in our house and what we're feeding our children and what I'm eating. And Tony's grateful because he knows that he's a lot healthier than he would be otherwise. Um, that same kind of idea applies to the church, right? People often get mad that something isn't going right in the church and then it turns out that that thing is actually the thing that they have to offer. And they're getting busy getting angry with everyone else, but it's actually their gift to give. And that's not always the case with people's anger, but, but it is sometimes. It's a good thing to check in yourself too. Well, another way that um, I think the church has failed at this, uh, not wholly, but we haven't done a great job, um, is that we, don't do very well at valuing gifts other than our own or that are different than a certain like pool of acceptable gifts. Um, I think that's why most of the charismatic prayers go to one kind of church and most of the intellectuals go to another and the Bible thumpers go to another. And they're all, we're all kind of quietly going like, you guys are weird or maybe, maybe you're not even Christians. Um, wouldn't it be great if instead we could learn to learn from one another. Like imagine a church where the prayer could pray all day and we could all be covered in prayer and they would never have to insist that everyone have their gift. And then they could turn and listen to the teacher teach because they know that that is the teacher's gift. And the teacher wouldn't look down on everyone who doesn't have the same intellectual pursuits because they'd remember that that's just what they bring into the mix. And when we couldn't see an obvious gift in someone, which often happens with children or with people on the margins, we would spend our time looking for that gift instead of assuming that there wasn't one. Now this passage invites us to lift everyone, to hold them all up, including ourselves, but only to a certain height. It also reminds us all that we are all limited. And that too is an enormous grace. You have some gifts, but not all of them. And that's how it's supposed to be. You know, I need this idea 
that idea to maintain my sanity. Um, I'm good at a few things and I'm not good at all of the things and I'm not even good at all the things that life requires of me. So uh, if you have been on the receiving end of one of my many administrative blunders, like a missed email or a forgotten to-do item or a meeting that just never got scheduled, um, you have experienced the limits of my giftedness. Um, that's not an excuse. I apologize for my mistakes and I work hard at mitigating those weak areas. But when I'm tempted to get caught in the shame of failure, I try to remind myself I am gifted for particular things. Like mostly I can preach. I can point people to the beauty of the gospel. And I think that God has called me to that. And it's okay that I'm not great at everything. Um, I'm also terrible. <laughs> I'm also terrible at asking questions and remembering details. So I often find myself in strange social situations where like I know that I should know a thing about someone but I can't remember. Um, or I like really want to hear what someone has to say or how they're doing but I can't come up with a question to like unlock them. Um, Tony is great at both of those things and it takes reminding myself of these limits, God-given limits, to extend grace to myself in those spaces. You know, to move away from envy and, or insecurity and instead to celebrate both Tony's gifts and mine, knowing that they are different because the grace of God has made it so. And isn't it kind of a relief that our limits are not just failures, but that they are God-given? I mean, I've been talking to a lot of exhausted people lately. Um, COVID continues to take its toll, and I think it's confusing because we've sort of gotten used to it. So it feels like we should be able to do the stuff that we were able to do before, you know, be just as productive. Um, but it's still hard to focus, and we're still stressed and tired. Um, it's still a really hard time. And please hear this. You worship a God who thinks that your limits are important. You know, our God gave us the Sabbath, a command to rest. Our God made us as people who sleep and only gave us some of the gifts, and not all of them. If you are struggling right now, I want you to hear this as permission to rest in whatever way you need to. If you don't have it in you to do something, even something that's really good, you know, even something that a bunch of people want you to do, and say no. If you need to skip a church meeting just to have nothing to do for a night, skip it. If you need a nap right now, at this minute, turn this off, go have a nap. We are called to use our gifts, but we are called by a God who knows our limits. A God who made them and we don't just and we just don't use our gifts quite as well when we're exhausted it's okay to have limits if you have to do less right now during a global pandemic go for it you know all these things about gifts and offering ourselves as a living sacrifice come to us as the right response to God's mercy it's God's mercy that is the most important thing in all of this and we are being transformed and, and we are transformed as we receive that gift deeply. 
Maybe right now, receiving the mercy of God means being gracious with yourself and trying your best to extend that grace to those around you. It seems to me that this text is suggesting that we could have radically different communities and even offer a challenge to, to the unjust structures in the world by accepting limits, by celebrating gifts, by receiving the grace of God. It's suggesting that our transformation requires that we learn to depend on God and on one another, which means that we don't have to put so much pressure on ourselves. If that's what it's new, if that's what it takes to see something new come, you know, the gifts of our God continually astound me. That our transformation could include rest, be yourself, be small, love one another, receive grace, and then watch the world change. It's the logical thing to do. Glory be to God. Please pray with me. Lord, would you teach us to be the community that Paul describes more and more. And thank you, too, for all the ways that we already are that way. I pray for those who don't know um, what it is that they have to offer to you and to your church. And I pray that you would show them. I pray for those who uh, need to set limits and don't know how, or need to just learn to live within their own limits. I pray that you would show them that too. I pray for all of us that we would receive your mercies. And in view of those mercies, that we would be transformed that we would offer ourselves as living sacrifices. That we would see the world change because your gospel goes forth in true and proper worship. In Jesus' name, amen.